We're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 25. 1 Samuel 25, we're going to be looking, starting in verse 18, through the rest of the chapter. We've been working our way through the book of 1 Samuel, and we are nearing the end, actually. You know, there's only 31 chapters, so we're getting close. It's been quite a journey. We're now um, nearing the end, really, of, of Saul, seeing Saul as king. And David's time as a fugitive will eventually come to an end. But he's still in the midst of it. He's still in the midst of his struggles, Saul attempting to kill him. And in chapter 25, 24, 25, and 26 are really these examples of David having an opportunity to end his time in the wilderness quicker than God would allow. He had an opportunity in chapter 24, to take Saul out. He was in the cave um, along with Saul, and he, instead of killing him, took a slice of his uh, robe and, um, and, and didn't do it. He stayed faithful. He, he showed restraint instead of taking out the Lord's anointed. And here in chapter 25, he's, he's met um, a man named Nabal. Actually, they haven't met, but he has met uh, his shepherds, and he's taken care of them, and he, and he asked for a repayment, and Nabal refused. And David shows that he's a little bit of a hothead, right? He, he got angry, and he is now coming after Nabal and all the men in his family. Until we meet this discerning and beautiful woman named Abigail, who's the wife of Nabal. So we're going to begin reading in verse 18, 1 Samuel 25. If you would please stand for the reading of God's word. And then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and five seahs of parched grain and a hundred clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and laid them on the donkeys. And she said to her young men, go on before me. Behold, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband, Nabal. And as she rode on the donkey and came down under cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men came down toward her and she met them. Now David had said, Surely in vain have I guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him. And he has returned me evil for good. So God, do so to the enemies of David, and more also, if by morning I leave so much as one male of all who belong to him. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. And let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow, Nabal, for as his, is his name, so is he. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. And now then, my Lord, as Yahweh lives and as your soul lives, because Yahweh has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who, do, who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant. For Yahweh will certainly make my Lord a sure house because my Lord is fighting the battles of Yahweh. And evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and seek your life, 
The life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living in the care of Yahweh your God. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. And when Yahweh has done to my Lord according to all the good that he's spoken concerning you and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause or for my Lord working salvation himself. And when Yahweh has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. And David said to Abigail, Blessed be Yahweh, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you, who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. For as surely as Yahweh, the God of Israel, lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, unless you had hurried and come to meet me, truly by morning, there had not been left to Nabal so much as one male. Then David received from her hand what she had brought him. And he said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice, and I have granted your petition. And Abigail came to Nabal. And behold, he was holding a feast in his house like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, and he was ve- for he was very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until the morning light. And in the morning when the wine had gone out of Nabal, His wife had told him all these things, and his heart died within him, and he became as a stone. And About ten days later, Yahweh struck Nabal, and he died. And when when David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be Yahweh, who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal, and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. Yahweh has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. Then David sent and spoke to Abigail to take her as his wife. And when the servants of David came to Abigail at Carmel, they said to her, David has sent us to you to take you to him as his wife. And she rose and bowed with her face to the ground and said, Behold, your handmaid is a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. And Abigail hurried and rose and mounted a donkey, and her five young women attended her. And she followed the messengers of David and became his wife. And David also took Ahinoam of Jezreel, and both of them became his wives. And Saul had given Michal, his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who was of Galim. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I decided to use Yahweh throughout because in Abigail's speech, she, she refers to David as Lord, and she often will say, speak to him as Lord, then talk about Yahweh as Lord, and it gets a little bit confusing, so I thought using uh, Yahweh would be, which is what the Hebrew is literally, would be a little bit more uh, easier to follow. So what is this all about? What is this text all about? Well, to put it simply, this text really teaches us that God rescues his servants from their own stupidity. He restrains us as Christians. He restrains us from our own sinful purposes. You know, we sang earlier in the service, grace, grace, God's grace. And there's different, different ways to talk about God's grace. Grace that pardons and cleanses within It's that grace that we receive at salvation when we trust in Jesus. He gives us grace, the free gift of grace to be saved as we look to Christ, our Savior. 
But Jesus, but God also gives us grace throughout our lives as Christians to empower us to do his good works, but also to restrain us from our own stupidity and our own foolishness. That's grace too in your life. That's grace that he's given you. That there's mercy when God frustrates your paths. That there's grace when he hinders the the, the sinful choices you're making and stops you. We have this, it's not really a rule, more of a principle in our house, that we don't keep sweets in our house. We don't keep cookies and cakes because my wife knows me and that I will eat everything that, that is there. Right? If there's a box of Oreos, right, that's going to be gone in a few days. I will be eating that. And, and so my, my reasoning, I think, is wise, though. Why keep a box of Oreos in the house for a couple months right, and just eat a few at a time and have that temptation there for months and months? Just eliminate that temptation, right? Just a couple days, a few nights of, of eating, and it's gone. And so that's not good. I don't, I don't have willpower like my wife and others. And so we've sort of kept this rule, and it's for my good. That we don't keep sweets in the house. And it's a good example that God's rules are like that. It's, it's, it's for our good. We remind our kids that we, we, we give them rules, we give them boundaries because we love them. And we want them to be protected. We don't want them to be in danger. And we want them to be healthy. And so there's this restraining grace that we see. And it comes in the form of a peacemaker. It comes in the form of Abigail for David. And so if, and Dale Ralph Davis says, if you look and you look at the entirety of this chapter, you should sense the necessity of God's providence. First Samuel is depicting how Yahweh is establishing his kingdom on earth and showing us why that can only be Yahweh's work. It can only be God's work to bring his kingdom in. The task can never be fully entrusted to human instruments. And that's true for the church. The church cannot be entrusted to a human being. The church cannot be entrusted to a pastor. The church cannot be entrusted to a group of elders or deacons. The church must be entrusted to Jesus. Jesus, That's why we say Jesus is the head of the church. He's the head of Hope Presbyterian Church. Jesus himself said, I will build my church. And that's what we're seeing all through 1 Samuel. God is building his people. He's restraining his, this King David. He's, he was not quite king yet. And he's restraining Saul. And it's all being done through his providence. And there's only one servant who could be trusted with the kingdom. And that is Jesus And so we see this restraining grace, this this providential restraining grace come in the form of Abigail. And we're reminded of Jesus' words in Matthew 5 in the Beatitudes, that blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And we're seeing Abigail as this peacemaker, as a daughter of God. And this blessing that she has become to not only David, but Nabal, at least for a time. And so this morning, we should be reminded as believers that we are to be peacemakers as well. How do we do that? How, do we, how, do we, how are we like Abigail? How do, we, um, how do we imitate her example? Well, 
First of all, we must trust in the God who reconciles and makes peace with us if we're to become peacemakers in the world. You first have to understand the gospel. You first have to understand that you are at odds with God and he made peace with you if you're to understand how to be a peacemaker in the world. So we're going to look at being a peacemaker in three ways. First, we're going to see the reasons for being a peacemaker, the risk of being a peacemaker, and the reward of being a peacemaker. First, the reasons. What are the reasons for being a peacemaker? Well, I probably don't have to spend too much time convincing you that we live in a world that desperately needs peace, a world that desperately needs shalom. And we don't have it. Right? If, you, if you look out in the world, you go on social media, right, how much of the percentage of what you see on your Facebook or Instagram or whatever social media site you get on, how much of that, what percentage is positive and good? And what percentage of that is negative and people fighting and arguing? I haven't really used this, but I know there's a neighborhood next door sort of site you can go on and, and kind of hear your neighbors in the HOA talking about whatever they are, and how much of that is positive versus negative. How about politics? Is it positive? Is it encouraging? We see war in the world. We see hunger. We see conflict. We see injustice. How about at your workplace? Is it peaceful? Or is there interpersonal conflict? happening quite a bit. I was going to say this earlier when we received Chris as a member, but there's conflict in the church, is there not? And it makes sense because the church is a, is a body of, of sinners, and when you get sinners in the same room, there's going to be conflict. There's going to be tension. And I, I'm sure there's tension and conflict in your family. It's kind of ironic. A lot of that tension, a lot of that fighting happens at the family vacation, doesn't it? When you go out to the beach and you want to have a good time and it doesn't take long before something happens. Some, there's some tension, there's some conflict. I remember we went to Disney three, four years ago, three years ago, I think, and we went to the fireworks the one night and, I mean, you're talking about thousands of people in a small area and then everybody's trying to get to their car and... The conversations I heard of, of couples and married couples fighting and arguing as we're trying to get out of there, I think everybody could have used some marriage counseling after, after leaving Disney that night. I think we survived somehow. Ken Sandy has written uh, an amazing book called The Peacemaker. I recommend it to you. It, 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 it's biblical principles for conflict resolution. And in that book, he talks about that we're... We all lean one of two ways. We're either peace breakers or we're peace fakers. The goal is we need to be peacemakers. And we're peace breakers in this sense. In James chapter 4, he says, What causes fights and quarrels and among you? And he gives us the answer. Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. Where conflicts begin is at the level of desire, the level of the heart, and what you desperately want, the the idols you're worshiping. And when you don't receive what you want, you fight 
you quarrel, and you murder. And we all have that in us because we're all idol worshipers. We struggle with worshiping our idols and we're peace breakers. But some of us lean toward that way more than others. On the other side of that coin is, is the peace fakers. And that's me. I'm more of the peace faker type where you avoid controversy. You avoid conflict. You push it to the side. You push it under the rug. And you don't want to get involved. You don't want to deal with it. And you want to say, everything's fine as the house burns down. In Ezekiel chapter 13, the prophet says it's those false prophets that say they see visions of peace for Jerusalem when there was no peace. They're speaking falsely. Kevin DeYoung says, nothing in the Bible equates godliness with avoiding controversy at all costs. It's not godly. We're to be peacemakers. And so how do we do that? Where should we go first? Well, the first place we have to go is we have to see God as our, a peacemaking God. That our main problem when we are born from birth, that we do not have peace with God. And the reason we know that is because we have conflict with each other. Points that we don't have, we don't have peace with God. We are sinners. We're idolaters. We worship ourselves. And so what do we see our God doing? We see our God initiating salvation while we were still sinners, taking that first step toward us and justifying us by faith as we look to Christ. I read it earlier from our assurance of pardon. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ reconciled us to himself on the cross. And how did he do it? Colossians 1, he made peace by the blood of his cross. He made peace by entering into our bloody, hate-filled world, taking it upon himself. That is the gospel. If you trust in him, he creates a way for you to be reconciled and have peace with God. But sometimes the church gets this backwards, gets this wrong. And we, we preach not a, a peacemaking God, but we, we preach a, a peace-breaking God. And that is what I would equate legalism to, that, that it, you always have to do more. You have to obey. You have to, you have to get your life straight. You have to get cleaned up before God's going to accept you. You have to. It's on you before you can be saved. That's what legalism says. And that's, that's, that's breaking peace. Because there's no amount of cleaning up you can do. While we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. He took the first step. The other error is the peace-faking route, which is the more liberal liberalism, theological liberalism, where we say, you don't have to change. Be who you want to be. Live the truth you want to live. God will accept you no matter what. He's not looking for repentance. He's not looking for change. He loves you as you are. And that's just as damaging, just as false. God saves you before you could do anything, but then he changes you. He calls you to repentance. No matter which sin you're dealing with, he wants to change you. 
So this peacemaking God, he reconciles you to himself. He works holiness into you. So that is the reason for, for, for being a peacemaker. We need it. it. There is conflict in our hearts. There's conflict between our, our God and us, and there's conflict between each other. But what about the risk? The risk of being a peacemaker. Let's look at that. And now we're going to jump into the story. What are the risks? Why is it difficult? Why is it hard to be a peacemaker? And to do this, we're going to look at the actions of, of Abigail and what she does. And to remind you of the backstory, David has sort of been, he's been on the run. He's with his group of men, and they're in the wilderness, and they have no place to stay. They're on the run from Saul. They've come to this area where this man has his sheep and his servants. His name is Nabal. I mean, he's very rich. He's very wealthy. He's been a very successful businessman. And he's a fool. His name actually means fool. And he is a fool not because he's stupid, really. It's because he's got his eyes only on what he owns. It's his. He has no time for God, no time for other people. So David goes. He takes care of his men in the wilderness. He asks for a simple repayment. Nabal refuses, and David is coming out with swords to take his pound of flesh. And this is when we hear the servant say, uh, Abigail, um, this is not looking good. David is going to wipe out your entire house and all the males. So, so this is where Abigail steps in at verse 18. And we're going to see the, the peacemaking wisdom of Abigail, of how wise Abigail is in the, this circumstance, of the things she does to be a good peacemaker. Well, what does she do in verse 18, first and foremost? It says, she, Abigail made haste, so she goes quickly, and she took 200 loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and five seas of parched grain and hundreds clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and laid them on donkeys. She has a plan and she's moving quickly. Right? She is decisive and resourceful in her actions. She realizes this is a serious problem, and I've got to do something about it. And she is in the place to do something about it. She acts quickly and decisively. Notice what she prepares. She doesn't skimp on anything. They're a wealthy family. They've got lots to provide, and she does. She provides lots of food as this gift to David and his men. And so she's she's, she's quick, quick to... and sometimes that's what it means to be a peacemaker. You've got to act quickly. You've got to insert yourself. You've got to intervene. You've got to be one who uh, is willing to, to get in the midst of this, this fight. And she does. She's also perceptive in these circumstances, isn't she? Look at verse 19. She says to her young men, Go on before me with these gifts. Behold, I will come after you. She did not tell her husband Nabal. She didn't tell her husband Nabal. She is being not deceptive, but she's being discreet. And there's wisdom in that, right? Nabal's not to be trusted. He is also a hothead, just like David. These are the guys that are fighting. So she is being very careful with the information she's providing people. There is wisdom and discretion and knowing what to say and when. She also shows this discretion in verse 36 after this scene, and Nabal is feasting in his house, and he's drinking, and he's very drunk. Verse 36, so what does she do? She tells him nothing until the morning light. 
till the wine is out of him. And then she tells him. So she's very smart. If you've been married a while, you've, you've probably learned that lesson. You don't always speak your mind when you want to speak it, right? You, you wait till the timing is right. Know when to speak. Right? It's very, being very wise. But notice also the risk she's taking here. These are warrior men with, in a warrior-type mentality, ready to, to kill, ready to fight. And what do we see her do in verse 20? It says, she rode on the donkey and came down under the cover of the mountain. She's using the shadows in her favor. Behold, David and his men came down toward her, and she met them. I mean, picture the scene. One female, singular female. The servants have gone on ahead of her. And she's on a donkey, and she's, there's you know, these, a group of men ready with pitched pitchforks and torches and, and swords ready to take out whatever they see. And she stands in the gap. And she stands there and ready to give her speech to David. She put herself in danger. And to be a peacemaker, that happens sometimes. When you are between two people who are fighting, sometimes you get the friendly fire. right? It hits you. But you have to be willing You have to be loving enough to be willing to do that when people are fighting. To say, you know what, I'm going to help you. I'm going to to be this third party. and I'm going to insert myself. Even if I get some blows hit me. Thankfully, that doesn't happen in Abigail's case. But she's courageous. She's courageous to do this. And then in verse 21, we get this backstory that David had already said these things, that he was going to come out and it just gives you the idea that he is, he's got killing is on his mind. God, do so to the enemies of David, verse 22. And more also, if by the morning I leave as much as one male of all who belong to him. So that's the mindset David's in. And then look what she does when she sees David. Verse 23, she, she hurried and got down from the donkey, fell before David on her face. And bowed to the ground. So, so immediately she's, in her demeanor, she is being deferential. She's being humble. She's, she's getting off her donkey immediately. And she's showing honor and respect to David as the anointed one. In verse 24, she fell at his feet and said these amazing words, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. So she's coming humbly. And she's saying, put the guilt on me. And she's probably not guilty of anything. She's just here to be this representative. She, she actually knew nothing about David being with these servants in the wilderness. She's saying, if I have any guilt in this, put it on me. And so she's being completely engaging in her demeanor to win an audience with David. It's a great, masterful way and wise way to speak to someone who is is, is angry, right? If someone comes to you and is angry, one of the best things you can do is come to them humbly. If you come to them pridefully or come to them arrogantly or angry, if you try to go toe-to-toe with their anger, somebody's going to get hurt. But if you come to them softly, gently, God can use that, and he does use that in her case. And now we're going to look at the speech she actually makes to David in verse 26, 
and following. So she now has, has his ear. She says in verse 25, Let my Lord regard, let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal, for his name, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name in folly, is with him. So here she's acknowledging, my, my husband's a fool. My husband's a fool. She agrees with David on that. But she says, look, I didn't see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. And here she begins her argument. And her speech is amazing. It's theological. It's rational. It's convincing. She says in verse 26, Now, my, my Lord, as Yahweh lives, and as your soul lives, because Yahweh's restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek to do evil be to, to my Lord be as Nabal. Look at, notice what she says. She says, the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt. He's on the way to, to spill blood. But she's already saying, God stopped you from this. And notice what she's saying. I haven't stopped you. God is the one at work. He is the one who's doing this. And he, she's so certain, I think, of what she's about to stop him from. She's saying it in the past tense. He's restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand. It's a, it's a good argument, right? As she impresses himself, herself upon him. And, and she says in verse 20, now, now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow him. So here she gives the gift of all this food to David. And here she gets into theological argument. She says, forgive the trespass of your servant. For the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house. Because my Lord is fighting the battles of Yahweh. And evil shall not be found in you as long as you live. So what is she saying? You are to be above reproach, David. You are on your way to the kingship. You're going to be king. And you can't arrive there by blood guilt. You can't arrive there by shedding blood unrighteously. You need to be righteous. You're different than Saul. You're better than him. And so here I am protecting you. He says, if men rise up to pursue you, verse 29, and seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound up in the bundle of living in the care of Yahweh your God. And the lives of your enemies he will sling out from the hollow of a sling. And beautiful language, this language of David's life being in this bundle of the living and care of, of, of the Lord. I've heard this story that, that some shepherds, when they're out in their watch, they would have a bundle with them. They'd carry it at all times, and they would have a, a small stone in their bundle that would represent every sheep that they're watching. It would be the same exact number, so they would know exactly how many um, sheep they had with them because of the, 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 the stones in their pouch. And so it's using that imagery that just as sure as as, as you are in the bundle of God, he will take care of your life. He will be with you. And your enemies will be slung out. That's with a sling. And then she says, And when the Lord has done to my Lord, according to all the good that he's spoken concerning you, and has appointed you prince over Israel. See, she knows his destiny. She knows what he's going and meant to do, to be, to be this king over Israel. And notice how she ends her final point. My Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience or having shed blood without cause 
or for my Lord working salvation for himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, when Yahweh has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. So she's saying, I have, look at this, she's very shrewd here in her suggestion. She's saying, look, I've helped you out. Will you help me out in the future? Now she didn't know exactly how that was going to play out, but we know it ends up with her being married to him. She says, remember your servant. She's being very, very shrewd in her suggestion here. So as we're considering the words of Abigail as this peacemaker, in Ken Sandy's book, he has these, he calls them the four G's of conflict resolution. And I think we see each one of these in her argumentation. The first one, the first G of conflict resolution is to glorify God. That that is the main goal when you are trying to resolve a conflict between people either if it's between you and, and someone else or you are being a third party, the goal is to glorify God. And look, we, we go back to her very first point in verse 26. She's saying the Lord has restrained you. She's saying God is in the midst of this situation. Often when people are in a heated argument or a battle, they forget about God. They forget about what he's doing, what he's up to. And she here is reminding David, the Lord is active. He's active in this restraining grace. Secondly, the second G of conflict resolution from Ken Sandy is get the log out of your own eye before you confront someone. Get the log out of your own eye. And how does she do that? Remember what she says, verse 24, on me alone be the guilt. So when you are in conflict with someone, what Ken Sandy would say is, even if you are only 1% of the 99% of the, of the 100 to be, of at fault, if you've only done the 1%, own that 1%. Try to find something you can pull out of your eye, that log out of your eye, and you'll, you'll get a better hearing with someone. And she's doing that. She's saying, on me alone be the guilt. The third one is to gently restore. Let's not be confused. What she's doing with David here is she's trying to change his mind. Remember, he is dead set on, on killing Nabal. She is very, being very careful to be gentle about restoring David. She's saying, what you're, she doesn't go out and say this, but, but what he's doing is wrong. and She's trying to correct him. She's doing it very gently as she's restoring him. And she's doing it from a place of humility and deference. And the last G of conflict resolution is go and be reconciled. To the best of your ability, reconcile with someone. And she does that. She, she, she gets a good audience with David. He listens to her, and they are reconciled, at, at least them. And, and he, ref, he stops from killing Nabal. Well, let's see how the, the rest of the story plays out as we continue. And as we look at, those are the risks of being, of, of being a peacemaker. It's difficult. It's hard. But what are the rewards? What's the reward of being a peacemaker? Well, what does David respond to Abigail? Look at verses 32 and 33. David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you, and who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. What's the word he keeps repeating? Blessed, blessed, blessed. Peacemaking has the reward of blessing. Peacemaking blesses the people you are 
bringing peace for. It's a blessing. It's, a, it's such a blessing to see people reconciled and to see sin averted. And David repeats that word. Blessed be God. Blessed be your discretion. Blessed be you. And David himself is blessed. Why? Because the other reward is no one's killed this day. The avoidance of bloodshed. Abigail saved David from killing without cause, and Abigail saved Nabal from being killed without cause. It saves lives to be a peacemaker. How many people have you heard about on the news and other who are murdered or killed? Over $15, something insignificant. She avoids bloodshed, and that is a blessing. That is a reward of being a peacemaker. But also peace extends not just to these men, but, but to all the parties involved. Even the peacemaker. See verse 35, Then David received from her hand what she brought him, and he said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, you, Abigail, you receive peace now. Go to your house. See, I've obeyed your voice, and I've granted your petition. Peace, peace extends even to the peacemaker. When you've done your job and all you can do, you will receive peace as well. But we also see how the story ends, don't we? with Nabal, and that peace makes a way for God's justice and vengeance to take place. Look at verse 38. We see what happens with him ultimately. She tells him what happened after the wine's gone out of him the next morning. His heart dies within him. Right? He's probably white as a ghost. He becomes as a stone, it says. In verse 38, about 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. When you forgive, when you make peace and reconcile with someone, It doesn't mean God is not going to bring justice. He will. He'll bring vengeance in the situation. Very often we get in in conflicts with people because we want to bring the justice. We want to bring the vengeance. But when you're at peace with someone, you're acknowledging God is ultimately going to bring that vengeance. He's going to bring justice upon the evildoer. And we see that through the peace of the cross. The peacemaking God brings peace through the cross and the peace that flows from the cross. Peacemaking's hard. What Abigail does is a great example, but it wasn't easy. And I love that we have this example of this discerning woman picturing and pointing us to how Christ makes peace for us. Peacemaking is hard, isn't it? Because what are you asking people to do often in in a peacemaking situation? What are, you, what are you asking people to do? You're asking people to forgive. And forgiveness is hard. You ever tried it? Forgiveness is hard. Why? Chad Bird, a Hebrew scholar, says to forgive others is to die. Have you thought about that? To forgive someone is to die. Die to our wounded egos. Die to our revenge. Die to our hate. Die to ourselves. That's why it's hard. But that's why it's necessary. God kills to make alive. He kills our ego. He kills our pride to make us alive to him. He brings us into that death too. And to raise us into the peace of letting go. It's like when Paul said, I have already been crucified with Christ. If you've trusted in Christ, you have been crucified with Christ. His death is your death. 
And that will kill your desire for vengeance as well. The cross provides a way of reconciliation and peace. Jesus provides our greatest need for peace. He provides that greatest need. There's there's tons of reasons for peace in this world. The most important need you have is to be freed from your sin. And he meets that need. Secondly, he takes that greatest risk for peace. The risk of his own life. He lays it down. Abigail's words, when she says, On me alone be the guilt, they echo Christ's words. That's substitutionary atonement. Abigail had nothing really to contribute. She was innocent in the whole matter, but she says, on me alone be the guilt. Let me take the guilt. Our peacemaking Christ does that for you and I. He stands in the gap. And he provides the greatest reward of peace. We're going to sing a song at the, uh, after the sermon. A song we haven't sang before. It's called, Come Ye Souls by Sin Afflicted. This beautiful line of what the cross can provide us. It says, sweet as home to pilgrims weary. Right, when you're on a journey, you're a pilgrim. Home is sweet. Light to newly opened eyes. When you've opened your eyes for the first time, light is amazing. Like full springs and deserts dreary. When you're thirsty, a full spring to quench your thirst. What does it all point to? The rest the cross supplies. Do you know that rest? Where you can lay down your weapons because Christ laid down his and brought you to your Father. All who taste it shall to rest immortal rise. When you taste this Christ, when you taste Jesus, when you, when you have embraced everything he offers to you in the cross, There's a rest that nowhere else you can find. Look to Jesus. Mercy flows through him alone. Would you look to Jesus with me? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this message. We thank you for this word, the story of of Abigail, with these words that echo the, the very heart and words of Christ, who takes the guilt that we deserve and where we look to the cross to find our rest, or to, find our, to find life. Father, we live in a, a world that is so fraught with conflict and hate. Would we as brothers and sisters in Christ be examples to this world that there's another way to live? There's another way of humility and hope and love that we can't find anywhere else because it comes from outside of us. It comes from the, cro- the cross comes from Christ, who is our hope. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.